0: Hi, if you're a fan of Nonprofit Lowdown, you might be interested in my weekly free newsletter where I send out weekly inspiration for fundraising, notices about any upcoming events that I'm doing, and a cute dog picture. So check it out at riawong.com, R-A-G-A-W-O-N-G dot Welcome to Nonprofit Lowdown. I'm your host, Ria Wong. Hey podcast listeners, Ria Wong with you once again with Nonprofit Lowdown. Today, we are talking about disrupting sexism and racism in the hiring process. And I'm here with the CEO and president of Teen Dynamics, Alfonso and Trina, and we're going to talk about disrupting racism and sexism, but I think particularly in today's hiring climate it's more important than ever so we'll talk a little bit about team culture changing our practices and what it really takes to be a forward-thinking equity centered leader so welcome trina and alfonso
1: thank you for having us
2: thanks for having us here
0: i love that both of you are next to each other we've never had that at nonprofit lowdown you guys are definitely besties
2: you happen to get us in a time when we're in the same place not all the time but got it today
0: Excellent. Well, before we jump into the very, very hot topic at hand, can you tell us a little bit about yourselves and why is it that you started this company?
1: I'm Trina. I'm the CEO at Team Dynamics. I use she and her pronouns. A couple things that are true about me is prior to founding Team Dynamics, I was a two-time nonprofit executive director. So I spent squarely 20 years in the nonprofit sector. It was a mixture of direct service, public policy, advocacy. And when we were Paying attention to what was happening in our city, in the U.S. and its colonies. Alfonso and I were getting really clear about where we felt like our skills, talents, and experience could be most helpful. Some other things that are really relevant to how I come to this work. I am white, I am 41, and I am queer.
2: And I'm Alfonso. I use he and him pronouns. I'm third-generation Mexican-American, and I'm a gay man. When Trina and I first started working together, Team dynamics was sort of a side hustle. It was a dream. It was a bunch of post-its on a piece of tag board that lived in my closet. And When we would get together, we would dream and scheme about how we could just think bigger and be more expansive about all of the different skills and tools that we had. I, I worked in philanthropy for about a decade, worked in organizing in the LGBT rights movement. I worked as a program officer. So I've been on like lots of sides, money and people inside of a number of different issues. And we just felt like there was a gap in training. So there were a lot of folks making the case for why race and gender equity in the workplace were important inside of nonprofits. And the questions that we kept hearing were the the how questions, the behavioral questions, the tactical questions. So people could really cast a vision. They could commit to a value. They could even sometimes craft really wonderfully worded plans or sets of intentions. And then we're really struggling to match the behavior. And so that's that's where we really found our sweet spot.
0: Yeah, let's jump right into it because I think that is so spot on. Having been an ED myself, been friends with lots of other EDs, it feels like the road is littered with failed attempts, right? So it's not for want of commitment to the idea of it, but it feels like the execution is where the challenge lies. And particularly for the busy nonprofit executive where you have a million things happening and everything's on fire all of the time. It feels like it's hard to dedicate the emotional, mental, and time bandwidth to make this happen in a real way. So can you talk to us a little bit about what is the roadmap to making these changes within an organization?
2: So there's two things that folks listen to our podcast behave that we're pretty relentless about. The first is self-awareness. So folks really want to point at somebody else. I'm not saying there isn't racism happening inside your organization, that there isn't sexism and homophobia happening in your organization. And oftentimes people are more interested in a critique or an analysis of system and structure and lack the capacity to really look at self and say, how am I an actor inside of a system that is perpetuating preferences for whiteness, perpetuating preferences for masculinity? And what different choices could I make in the next email I write? So we in the next meeting I go to, in the event I host tomorrow. So we often start with self-awareness. And then the other thing we're really relentless with is goal setting. So racism and sexism are huge. We absolutely want to make gains in our lifetime. And sometimes people say things like, our strategic plan says we're committed to ending racism. And that feels out of reach for folks it feels nearly impossible. I'm down for like being really ambitious and audacious in the visions that we cast, but then we also have to say, so really specifically, what could be different or better in the next 30, 60, 90 days and get pretty granular. So self-awareness and goal setting for us are at the core of our practice.
0: Yeah, that's really helpful because I do think, especially when I think about your average executive director who's really just running at full speed, it's hard to take that step back to do some self-inquiry and self-analysis and, and really easy to default to, well, well, this is just how we do it. This is how it's always been done. And so helpful that you you both are here to help you know take us out of the day-to-day to really start to reflect on the practices and the assumptions that we make. So. Let's get really nitty gritty here because this is Nonprofit Lowdown. We get down to brass tacks. What are some of the common pitfalls that you've seen with failed change efforts?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question. So we are seeing people make really big statements and then not resourcing those statements properly. So not resourcing them with expertise, not backing it up with cash, not making the time to make any of those priorities real. And so a couple of the things we talk about is changing organizational culture, changing workplace culture, changing the culture in the U.S. is forever work. So we think about it like a river. The water is always flowing. And we have to decide daily that we are going to make time. And so often what we notice is proportions are really off. So folks will make a really big claim or say, this is part of your top three priorities. And then it's like resourced so tiny. And so our question becomes, how seriously are we taking this? How shallow or deep is the work? And I think making sure that we are clear, this is where we are headed. So we're either going to get readier or we're going to fall farther behind. And so whether it's a business case, it's a moral imperative, sort of whatever angle folks take. And it can't just be the responsibility of one role at an organization. So how are we also recruiting boards recruiting staff, recruiting donors that are in alignment with where we're headed so that you're not spending a ton of time feeling pulled back to the laggard. So we think about change curves, we think about early adopters, folks who are ready if we give them the room and the tools to move. And so often we want folks really thinking about mobilization and not persuasion. Folks are really held back by the feedback they're afraid they're gonna get, by what is too far, by what's gonna be public and private. And so there's something about feeling really anchored in those goals and specific enough that it's really clear we have to proportionally resource. So
0: can we just go down one layer here? Because I'm curious about, I mean, I've always really believed that culture is read-only because how many times, and I'm guilty of it too, coming to the staff and you're like, okay, we're going to have a culture. Yeah, Phil. So it It seems to me that culture is read-only and that culture is really supported by habits and processes underneath that support culture. And so I'm curious, what are some of the habits and practices that are levers for cultural change?
2: Yeah, we would actually say culture is only the habits. Like culture is all of the habitual patterns that we are in that we forget to revisit and talk about and ask if they're still serving the goals that we have. So we just get in these ruts and we do things and we say, we wanna change while changing nothing about how we behave. So we have this big audacious goal around race or gender equity. And we talk a lot about what we'll realize, but we don't get in any new practices. And so one of the things that we do is we invite people to start looking at a very specific level. So we might say, let's look at time and tempo what are some of the assumptions we make about time and tempo? And then we start to realize, well, one of the assumptions we make about time and tempo is that everything has to be fast. What we know is that urgency is part of whiteness. Urgency is part of white supremacy culture. And the idea that everything has to be done yesterday doesn't allow space to be thoughtful, space to be creative, space to build relationship, space to create goals that are about what's the experience we're going to have along the way it all becomes output. It all becomes product. And so then we don't have space to say the way we're doing things is really working for white folks or really working for men, but it's not working for black and brown people. It's not working for women and femmes. It's not working for LGBTQ plus people. But hey, we still have this really amazing vision and like everyone's pretty good at talking about it in public. So we have to reflect on things like that, or we might also reflect on something like emotional labor. And we start to see that there's a pattern of, well, when someone gets married, dies or has a kid, women take care of like cards and candy. Okay, what's that pattern about? It's, it's the assumption that women do the caretaking and men do the quote, real work. And so we forget to go to those granular levels around the day-to-day behaviors we engage in. We get really fixated on imagining a different future But we can't realize different futures if we can't get so specific. And it might sound like, gosh, that takes a lot of time. But we're all experts in the culture that we're living. So when we stop and think, what is our pattern relative to time? People can right away tell you, well, everyone's going to give you a really dirty look if you show up three minutes late to the Zoom.
0: Yeah, that's such an interesting point, because I I often think about, the fact that we're sort of like swimming in the waters and like we are not even aware of the things that are happening because it's like explaining to a fish that water is wet. You're like, what do you mean? It just is. Let's turn a little bit to the question of leaders because I think, as you say, it starts with self-awareness. It starts with the individual willing to shift behaviors, do some self-inquiry, self-reflection. I think too, the other piece that is sort of unsaid is the fact that it feels like in these new models that there is a giving of some power. And I'm curious about how are you working with leaders to help them transition into this new paradigm of outside of the white supremacist hierarchical command and control model?
1: Yeah, so part of what we talk about in all of our work is resisting any of the false binaries that aren't true. So the idea that either there is this rigid hierarchy or it's a total collective, okay? And we're like, there's a lot of space in between. So as we think about who we are, who's currently present, what are we missing, what are we trying to accomplish? Okay, cool. Given that alchemy of people, how do we need to set up resourcing, decision-making, temporary project teams, permanent work group? So really often we see people just sort of cling to old systems rather than in context in a goal-directed way with the human beings they have deciding what the structure should be and then we talk really consistently about the ever presence of both positional and identity power so that power could be again resource distribution decision making hiring and firing pay and promotion so who has what wiggle room and we were actually just talking yesterday at our staff retreat that part of what we think is happening on teams Folks are really resisting being interdependent. Folks would prefer to be independent, but proximal to each other. And we have this conversation as folks are having new ideas about how to do hybrid work. Forever folks were conflating relationships and working well together with just being physically near each other. (laughs) And we know you can be physically near each other and not in real and right relationship. And you can be really far away and be super close. So part of it is that idea too, of not just sinking into someone has all the power, somebody has no power, that's never been true. And we wanna get back to active choice. And so are we making different choices in moment? So an example I would use is as an executive director, and this has happened to a lot of people, you're in a meeting with your board and there are things you're voting on and there are decisions that you're making. And there are times where we all are looking around knowing we're voting on a set of financials, half the people in the room don't understand. So why didn't the decision get made at the finance committee level and then just communicated to the rest of everybody? If I do not have the set to be making a decision, how much self-awareness do I have to also tap out and say, yeah, that doesn't take away my power as a leader, it's that I'm here for a different reason because I have a different expertise. And so I always say, I'm dangerous and that I'll have an opinion in just about any room you put me in. So be careful about where you decide I should or shouldn't have control.
0: That's so funny, I, I, I'm with you, Trina. I, yeah. I have lots of opinions, yeah. not right. necessarily a lot of context. So let's switch tacks a little bit because you both wrote a fantastic book called Hiring Revolution, A Guide to Disrupt Racism and Sexism in Hiring. First of all, let's take a step back and talk about the great resignation because I think particularly in nonprofits, but certainly across the board, we are seeing a labor shortage. All of my ED friends are really scrambling to fill key positions or they're losing staff. And so I'm curious, do you have a view on that? What's happening? What's going on here?
2: Oh boy, do we. We have so many. We're like tapping each other like who's going to go for.
0: All right, tell me all the things. So,
2: so here's what's true. There was a really incredible study done by the Harvard Business School and Accenture Harvard Business School has a Center for the Future of Work. It's run by this incredible woman named Marie Raman. And what her research found is that there's actually millions of workers who are ready, willing, and able to do the jobs that are available. But because the AIs and the technology that screens applicants is so biased, people who want to work and can do the jobs aren't getting them. So for example, former military workers who have engineering backgrounds can't get dishwashing jobs in a corporate cafeteria because of the AI bias, because of the inputs that the humans put into the computer. It's not the computer's fault. It's the human's fault for putting the inputs in. So all these available workers are being pushed out of the available workforce or not pushed out of the available workforce, Mm -hmm. pushed out of working. And then what's happening is for those of us who have been or chosen to stay inside the workforce, what we're realizing is the conditions were untenable before the pandemic. So the pace, the amount of productivity, the expectation for work hours and the conditions that we were working. And then we were starting to wrestle with the realities of climate change. We had a racial reckoning and uprising in our country and around the globe, and we're living through a global pandemic. And so the container, the pressure got turned up in the container and folks said, all of this can't stay true. So it's not that people don't want to work. The expectation for workers, especially in the U.S. inside of capitalism was really fucked up before, but we weren't living through the middle of an uprising, a global pandemic, and a lot of folks weren't awake to climate change. Now we're awake to all those three things and we go, my nervous system can't hold all those truths and work this much
1: what we also know and the research is clearly being done as we go people are experiencing the great resignation really differently depending on the body you're in the access to capital and the access to quality affordable health care you had leading into the pandemic so it was like we were all in the water but in really different boats and so seeing so clearly that women and particularly women of color were just shoved out and were concerned how many generations it's gonna take to get back, to get paid properly, to get in leadership positions again. So again, the idea that that sexism and that expectation has always been there of women having a nine to five, a five to nine taking care of elders and young people. But there's been sort of this swirl of like, surely it's gotten better in decades. And what happened was it just surfaced that there's all this unpaid labor happening and that organizations and businesses are not being conscious about how people need their workplace to function from a benefits perspective, from a flexibility perspective, from a technology perspective, in order to bring all of their skills and talent. So, and again, I wanna name that, that means workplaces are missing out. It's not just that like, wouldn't it be nice if we had all kinds of people? It means that we have just these huge brain trusts that now our companies are gonna miss, be less competitive, be less profitable, be less effective.
0: What I'm hearing you say is that as organizations, as companies, we really need to reflect on how we change in order to retain talent. But then on the flip side, and I'm I'm just going to speak for myself here, as somebody who was in an organization and now makes my living as a consultant, I'm like, I'm never going back. Like I make more money than I did. I have flexibility. I get to do what I want to do. And frankly, if you're a millennial, you can make money on the internet. And so, look, I understand that all of the opportunities are not equally distributed, but I think we live in a really interesting time in the world where the possibilities to make a living are, like the barriers are much lower than they were 20 years ago.
1: Yeah, I think they're really different. So this idea of who needs access to quality, affordable medical care for multiple dependents, where somebody has high needs thinking about working hours and what is actually available to somebody and considering that idea of whether it's knowledge work or it's being a digital nomad, kind of what those things look like. I do think folks are really just not buying that the old container was the only way. Yeah. yeah.
2: In in our book, Hiring Revolution, the whole first section is just an invitation to start wrestling with the truth. So rather than... We would argue most companies are asking the wrong questions because they're asking about going back or how do we get people to work in the same way? It's not workers that need to change, it's workplaces. And we even have to wrestle with the idea and the notion of what is a workplace and what can it be and what should it be. And so companies need to change our expectations for the relationships that we have with the workers who choose to work with us. So the whole first section of the book is wrestle with the truth and the reality of what's been so wrong about work and how we're so far away from these goals we have about paying and promoting women, about hiring trans folks, about creating opportunities for people of color to break into the workforce. And we have an entire activity that asks the reader to consider your preferences in a way where you don't have to feel shame around it but take an inventory of all the things you think a good professional worthy worker is and realize after you've made that sort of sketch in your mind, realize how incongruent with your values and your goals related to race and gender equity, the sketch of who a good worker is, like that you come up with, that Trina and I come up with, if we were asked in rapid succession to imagine certain qualities and characteristics, and then we go, well, that's why as workplaces, we're asking the wrong questions. And we continue to think there is a version of a white masculine presenting person who would be ready, willing, and able to do the kind of work we did pre-pandemic.
0: Yeah, it's a really, I'm just sort of thinking back to my own hiring practices. And one thing that I'm realizing now is the ways in which I, and we were in education organization, a college access program. so going to college and coming from a specific type of college was really at least hiring practice is sort of a filter, but you know, potentially we could have been missing out on some really good talent. So I guess that begs the question, how you become aware of what is sort of an preference, like an arbitrary preference versus something that is necessary for the job. So in this example, like it was important to us to have folks of color who are first gen who'd gone to a certain tier of college, because that was where our kids were going. And therefore, we felt like we needed people who could help translate those environments for our students. But again, I could have been totally wrong. So I'm just curious, like, how do you sort of reconcile what you think is necessary versus what is a a preference?
1: Yeah, we took the work in researching the book to look for all of those choke So, all of those places where something about our process looked pretty like quote unquote normal on its face, but the racism and misogyny was kind of hidden in plain sight, even as sort of an industry standard. So, in the book and on the website associated with the book, so hiringrevolutionbook.com, we have over 20 tools. So, we went like nitty gritty, detail by detail, to walk folks through actual templates to say, hey, These are really problematic interview questions. Here are some alternatives. Here are some things that are gonna filter people of color out when you are deciding who to have phone screens with. Okay, here's why references are gonna fuck up your pool. Okay, so we actually just kind of go through all of the pieces because what Alfonso and I are really clear about, the same kinds of things need to happen in a hiring process. You need to know who you're looking for. You need to go find them. You need to talk to them and then you need to decide who you're going to pick so all of those activities still need to happen and one of the tools that i think we're finding people are feeling the most responsive to right now is readiness and value add analysis so going back to your example of people being from a specific school what we know in the us is that college is currently pay to play and that there are a whole lot of brilliant people who don't have access that doesn't mean someone is less intelligent, less capable, less less able. So what we wanna do is pull back from the assumptions we're making because somebody has a specific degree or from a specific place and actually say, so what do we think we know because of that? Do we think somebody is a critical thinker? Do we think they're an excellent problem solver? Do we think they're good at writing formally in English using grammar? Do we think they're an excellent fundraiser? Do we think they have good spatial relations? Like what kind of intellect and what kind of readiness are we actually considering and so for us it's breaking it down to behaviors traits knowings and then also as workplaces being way more honest of what can we teach so let's say somebody has never spent time in boston or san francisco or toledo and you need them to learn that location okay is that possible or impossible to do and what are the things we need baked in before somebody gets to us And then where are we looking to create opportunity? And so for us, we knew, and we wanted to just sort of share our work as a company that is majority people of color, half LGBTQ plus women in leadership, right? We just wanted to show how we do it because it keeps working.
0: Yeah, that's that's such an interesting point. I'm gonna gonna noodle on that one for a second. As I I reflect on my own hiring practices though, haven't hired for my own team for quite some time. But actually, this is a really interesting point to bring up. How has the hybrid remote work environment changed the ways in which we're recruiting, hiring, and onboarding staff members?
2: I think our, our critique, what we're troubled by is the way in which people are being unstrategic or arbitrary with their approach to hybrid working, meaning they've decided there's a number of hours or a number of days or specific days that people can or should be in the office or out of the office. And then they're unable to articulate what it all adds up to. And my perfect example is the clients that we have who are in office are all in their offices on Zoom separately. So are we actually, just feeling bad that we have rent to pay, so we feel like bodies should be in the building? Or do we have a very strategic and specific mission-related reason for being in the office together? And so first, we go back to goals. What is the goal of being in person? What is the goal of being online? Second, we go to self-awareness. What am I projecting? What do I value? So Trina and I, are business partners, we're really good friends in life, in real life, right? <laughs> We travel together, we go on vacations together, we have a, a shared group of friends, and we have really different preferences for how much time we would want to be in a space with other people. I prefer to be around more people more often. Trina prefers to do her work sort of in her home office, not because she doesn't like people or not because like I can't be trusted to be alone, it's just the vibe and the energy that we like. So it could be really easy for one of us to say, the company policy is we do this or we don't do this. But then we go back and say, the company policy is going to affect different workers differently based on their race, their gender, their class. We also know that if we have these really rigid policies, we were missing out on top talent before because we were obsessed with seeing people in person for a certain number of hours per day. And so if someone didn't have the resources or the ability to be full time in a certain geography, we were just saying, well, you don't matter, you're not important. So I'll stop there. I'm just going to repeat myself again.
0: Yeah. Okay. I want to dig into this because I think it's such an interesting and impertinent point because I feel like often managers and leaders don't actually have really good evaluation frameworks and criteria. And so they essentially evaluate by the number of hours that you're sitting in, in your seat. So I'm curious, what are some of the frameworks that you have around performance, evaluation, value add to the company when we're not able to judge? Like, are you sitting in the office? Because I do think that we conflate like number of hours in the office with like, you're a good worker. But the truth is you could be sitting there for 10 hours doing nothing. So
1: yeah, help me out. So, so we've been thinking about and practicing a bunch of different things in the last two years because we like to try stuff out first before we share it with other people. So what we know to be true is that if you've got a team, it is just highly likely you have an enormous range of paces and preferences. So there are times at work that I guess really correctly, how long something's going to take me to do and do well, so high quality. Then there are times when I miss the boat entirely and I'm just like, whoa, I got that done way faster or that took way longer. Right? So for any of us who are in salary to not kind of a hourly roles, It is this idea of how are we managing our time to our task? And what we've been noticing, and of course workers hate this and we do too, is really cultures of surveillance have sort of emerged. So whether it's checking keystrokes, wanting to look at browser history.
0: Yeah, um, it's so awful. It's like Big Brother is watching.
1: It's It's so creepy, right? And again, what keeps happening is we're measuring the wrong shit. So it's like, well, I sent this many emails in a day. Cool, did that help us do what? So very often there's this culture of busyness, which is not the same thing as making an impact. And for most of us, the undulation of our days and weeks months is this really big mix, right? Of meetings, creative work, building stuff from scratch, editing, communicating, scheduling. And so we don't need to be rank ordering or thinking of all of those things as the same. What we're absolutely thinking about from a race, gender and identity perspective around performance is it is wild out there how predictable it is, how you are going to actually measure the performance of your employees based on likability. So it really feels like middle school, really feels like high school, really for me feels like mean girl shit, which is folks are having favorites. And they're feeling connected to and disconnected from certain people and it's usually folks who work similar or different so on our team we have early birds night owls and everywhere in between it is our job as managers and leaders to be crystal clear about the output so what are the creative constraints what are the resources available what is the deadline what's the quality what am i expecting and then however somebody does that work to give me that thing by the date i needed it on budget perfect. So there's so much focus on control, which again, is white dominant culture. I want you to do it the same way I do it. When again, as Alfonso and I talked about, he's a person of color. I'm a white person. He's a man. I'm a woman. We work different. And it's not just because of those identities, but we know we can both add value and get there a different. So we think again, a lot about evaluation is how good are your goals? Are you super clear about what you want people to do and what is moving mission forward rather than what feels like, oh, somebody looked really busy or somebody was in a lot of meetings. And it's like, what did that do for anybody? And so we invite people to just get readier or being clearer managers that again, don't fall for the binary of, I'm either micromanaging or I'm hands off. It's like, you'd need to be a participatory manager that's consistently clear.
0: Yeah, I love that. And I'm, I'm hoping that there's a framework that you have on your website around this. But the other thing that I just wanted to, to lift up here is the ways in which leaders are often unaware that their actions and words are interpreted. So one example I have is like when I was an ED, there was this narrative about how I preferred the fundraising people and how I had favorites. And I li- it literally was like, I said, hi, I was unaware, but the narrative happened that I said hi to certain people more than I said hi to other people. And it was literally just because those people happened to be on the way to my office. And I had no idea, but there was like this whole narrative around like, well, Rhea prefers that person. Like they just happened to sit on the way there. So I think it's, I love the work that you're doing, which is about making the implicit explicit, but then also calling out the assumptions and the preferences and then the meaning making, which may or may not be there.
2: Yeah, there's there's a tool in our book, in the hiring revolution book, called Notice, Name, and Navigate. So one of the things we know about the workplace is we're not equipped to wrestle with the things we notice. So I noticed a pattern that Ray walks in says hi to some people, but we lack capacity to then say, hey, y'all, I noticed this pattern. Here's how it's landing for me. How's it landing for you? Then we can have a discussion about if it means what we think it means and if we need to shift behavior. So really specific to this hiring conversation that we're having, when we practice with the notice name navigate framework, we can ourselves notice, hmm, we're looking at a pile of applications. There are five women and five men. I'm going to use a, a binary for purposes of this example. There's five women applicants, and there's five men applicants. When we talk, and then I'll go. okay, I'm noticing this pattern about how we talk, then I'm going to name it to the group, not to call anybody out, not to blame or shame anybody, but just to say, like, I've noticed, so now I'm naming it. Here's my noticing team. When we talk about the five men in the pool, we talk about the kinds of leaders we think they would be. When we talk about the women in the candidate pool, we talk about if people would be friends with them. That feels incongruent with our goals of increasing the number of women on our leadership team. So I would like us to navigate how we talk about candidates differently and spend more time focusing particularly on leadership and less on likability. So then we have navigated the pattern that we're in and no one had to be in trouble or be like the sexist in the room. And this isn't about trying to make conversations about race and gender like easy or diluted or palatable, but it's saying it doesn't need to be a make or break moment. It could become part of matter of course, the way we work. And unfortunately, we, so many workplaces have low capacity to do that. So on the Hiring Revolution book website, we have a notice name navigate template so that you can literally like write it out for yourself until it becomes sort of habitual practice that's happening in every room here.
0: Yeah, I really love that because I do, I have noticed, <laughs> talk about noticing, I'm, I'm using the lingo that there, there can be a very quick default to blame and shame. And, you know, it, and I'll just, I'll speak on behalf of my peers, but I think a lot of EDs that I know are burning out because I think they're feeling like they're the, the target for a lot of blaming and shaming. So I'm just curious, like how do you help teams kind of get out of that mode of blame and shame and more into like the collective problem solving mode?
1: Yeah, it's about going fully and consistently back to self-awareness. So once we wrestle with the reality that we're the only adults in our control <laughs> and whenever we feel like we are pointing a finger out, have we pointed it in first? So what could i be doing better or differently what is in my awareness or out of my awareness where have i received correction and some new knowledge where have i needed to re-educate what do i need to do more of less of do differently stop and start that's a big list so before i go paying attention to anybody else we sort of say like eyes on your own paper like what is going on with me that i am reactive that i am frustrated that I am feeling a lack of agency in this moment. So I'm feeling like this is somebody's sort of fault or problem and it's this idea. And it's part of why we have so much hope as a company in changing so much in our lifetime is we really can all control how we behave at work. We really can do it. So in that way, it doesn't feel like our culture is happening to us. We are making daily decisions. And so it isn't just those matter of course moments to say like, pump the brakes. Oop! We got to like go a little bit to the left because we veered back to that old way. We're trying to create new neural pathways. We're trying to create new patterns. And what we know is blame and shame are, are not good teachers. So when we feel defensive and protective, we are wrapped up in our ego and our sense of personality and our sense of self-worth. And so to be actually lifelong learners and to say, All of us are too young to have peaked yet, which means we got way more to learn. What does it look like to be an organization and a leader where we say, hey, I'm noticing this feeling where you're giving me credit for things my team has done, and you're also I'm in trouble for things that our donor did. Right. So it's like, hey, something is happening weird where like I'm in the middle and I want to talk more about what I think my role is as a leader and your sense of what my role is, and then what we do together. So, we also have a tool we call Role Goal Soul, where we dig in on the specificity of a role. So, for example, Alfonso's the president at our company, he's also on a board. He has different roles with different organizations. And then, when he's working with our communications team or he's working with our capacity builders, cool, he's always the same person. But depending on where he's situated, there is a different set of expectations and responsibilities. So part of it, too, is really understanding in this context, do we have the same understanding of what my role and your role is, okay, cool, then how do we show up and how do we show up with that sense of responsibility of, okay, surely there's a bunch of offerings I could make before I start coming for you.
0: I love that. And it actually reminds me of a podcast that I did recently with Dr. Eugene Choi around our brains and the ways in which our brains are either in survivor or executive mode and when we're in survivor mode it's very reactive i'm in fight flight or freeze and i don't feel safe if i'm not doing my best work and so like how do we create that safety for the brain so that we can actually move to the prefrontal cortex and be responsive not reactionary. Okay, I have two last questions and I invite folks on the call. Let's talk about tough conversations, right? Because as we know as leaders, it's not always sunshine and roses. Like sometimes there are tough conversations that you have to have around performance. Thinking about the work of your company, how do you recommend that folks have tough performative like performance evaluation based conversations if somebody is not performing? up to the agreed standard?
2: So there's a a bunch there and we probably both have pieces to add. So for me, part of it is having a plan ahead of time. So knowing that I'm going to let my team know this is our plan for when things aren't going. So when we're not meeting each other's expectations, when we're not meeting an external expectation, when we're not reaching a benchmark or a goal here's the process that we will go through so let's have a name for it or let's have a certain like standing meeting for when we do that also not waiting so if i'm giving someone 90 day old feedback there's literally nothing anyone can do about it i'm bothered they're surprised we're not better now we're just feeling gross about it and so in all of my check-ins with my team, I tell them two things that are going really well, two things that I think we that need some attention. And then we make a goal for by when we want that list of things that need more attention or improvement to be not on that list anymore. So we might say, man, it's been like three check-ins in a row. That's been a problem. Let's try to have that not be a problem by our next check-in, whether that's next week or next month. So I think one is having a plan on the front end no surprises, and then secondly, continuous conversation about how things are going, not in a nitpicky or perfectionist way, not in a, here's how I would do it and you don't do it exactly like me, but hey, we're, we're still far from our goal. What can we do together to get closer to our goal? And there's a ton of research that most feedback is ineffective because most feedback is me saying, well, that's not how I would have done it.
1: And to layer on, and I love all of that, I think, A piece that we come to as well as managers is if something is falling below standard, we operate out of a place of curiosity of what must be happening. Because it's not that smart people we hired all of a sudden got stupid. That's not what happened. It's not that people who work hard and are in their integrity just like went sideways. So for us, it could be stuff happening at home. It could be stuff happening with health. And it's also then what's in our control. Where could I have been more clear were we overloading sort of your portfolio and pretending there was capacity were we unrealistic about the deadline did i think i was being clear and then come to find out we were imagining a different output so you gave me something you thought i asked for okay cool so for us it is always that clarifying conversation and i love how alfonso puts it of like what needs attention that's different than like where you're fucking up it's like i actually think with some attention we could both get clearer.
0: I love that. Okay, so we're coming up on our time together. This has been so informative. I really appreciate both of you being here. I've been asking this question, which is sort of a fun question. If you had a billboard that you could metaphor, communicate anything to the universe, what would be on the billboard? And I guess you can have two billboards since there are two of you.
2: Or- I think mine would say, stop waiting for someone else to give you permission to change. I, I love
1: that. Yeah. I think mine would be, how would work be different if we treated our bodies as an asset and not a problem?
0: Oh, an asset, not a problem. Quick side note, I just had a really fascinating conversation with a a neuroscientist yesterday (laughs) and we were talking about the mind-body connection and I shared that I only sort of recently came around to the idea that my body was not just a fancy container for my brain.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's what we're conditioned to believe in a U.S. workforce, right. That only the top inch and a half of our body matters, and the rest of it just might be in the way, like by yeah. having, rather than having this whole set of lived experiences, centers of wisdom that contribute. So, yeah, we're like, how do we get re embodied? How do we get re enheartened so that we can use our brain way better?
0: Yeah. Sounds like we're going to have to have a separate conversation about Body Keeps the Score because that's some really fascinating stuff. I've been getting deep into neuroscience stuff. Okay, friends, this has been really fun. Where can folks find you on the interwebs and where can they buy your book? Because it sounds like everyone needs this book. Get this book, friends.
2: There's a ton of resources available out on our book website, hiringrevolutionbook.com. Like Trina said, over 20 downloadable resources that you can follow along with the book hardcover copies of the book are available there. If you're doing a book club or you wanna buy the book for your whole staff, we do have bulk discounts. You can also get it on Audible, you can get it on Kindle. So we're kind of everywhere in terms of buying the book. And then you can also head to teamdynamicsmn.com. You can find our podcast, Behave. We have about three episodes a month where we talk about different workplace equity issues. Trina and I are probably our, our sassiest, most, untamed selves in those conversations. So it's really fun. And we also have a ton of non-hiring related equity resources and blogs that our storytelling team puts out every month.
0: Awesome. Well, we will make sure to put all of that information in the show notes for folks listening to the podcast. But in the meantime, Trina, Alfonso, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for all the work that you're doing in the world.
1: Thank you. Thank
2: you.